Hey friends, Brett from Trogonomics, and welcome to Porch Beers. Thank you so much for joining us. We got a good one on tap for you today. Today, we are going to talk about why and when and what and how is money so hard. So I've been thinking about this in my mind and wanting to talk to Trog about it. And it's a little more of an abstract question. It's a little more existential than what, you know, we often talk about living in the real world and practical, uh, emotion-driven money decisions. And as uh, the last year and a half or so has transpired with COVID and the economy is changing, not related to COVID, the economy is still changing and the, the world that, that many of us have lived in work-wise um, and living-wise has changed and evolved. It's something where money and finances and resources are a constant thought and something where I'm curious about when and where and how that evolves from always being a difficult, challenging thing in someone's mind and when does it actually become easy. So we sit down, we grabbed a couple beers, we flipped on the Zoom cameras and we knocked out a, a great little conversation and, and as it often does, uh, two things happen. Trog drops some some really thoughtful knowledge. He really unpacks the questions and, and some of the things that I've been struggling with. It also evolved into a little bit more of a macro conversation about wealth inequality and the greater macro economy that we live in, the labor market, uh, for instance, and how that works. So it's definitely heavier on the economic side. Um, it's a little bit more theory than it is practical use, but it's something that I don't think a lot of us get a lot of access to. Um, so a great conversation with Trog, a very thoughtful um, series of responses that he gives. And at the end of the day, I got a lot out of it and I hope you will too. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the conversation. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next time. Trog, welcome to Porch Beers. How's your day going? It's good. It's good. Good to see you. Good. Good to see you. Good to do this. We haven't done a Porch Beers in a little while. I've had a couple couple topics marinating in the back of my mind, and uh, this this one has been festering a little bit. Uh -huh. So I thought uh, I thought we should get this you know pen to paper on my end and get get some of this uh, out in the open. Um, it's going to be a little more on the existential side. I want to talk a little bit about philosophy and maybe behavioral concepts within economics. Okay. Um, just to give you a little direction, as okay. always, this is, this is going to be a cold topic, but I just want to give you a little bit of insight to where my mind is at sure. um, going into our conversation. But uh, before we do that, let's get down to some beer business. Um, what's, on the, uh, what's on the menu today for you? Well, we... Um... It's, it's summer here. Um, it's warming up. So I have a, a local beer from Raleigh Brewing down the road in Raleigh. It's yeah, called yeah. the First Squeeze. It's an American wheat ale with orange. So the squeeze is referring to some orange juice that they put in it. A little bit of citrus to it. Yep. I like that. Yep. I like that. I like a good wheat beer. Nice. Do? I'm doing uh, frame. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, I'm a little, a little bit of a new resident of Oregon. And there's a brewery out of uh, Hood River that's 
quite well respected. P-F-R-I-E-M is how you spell it. I've said frame. Some people say frame. I'm welcome to some comments in the uh, post-production <laughs> to the exact <laughs> pronunciation of it. But I'm going to go with the hazy IPA, also uh, kind of in that same summary mode. Um, at the time of recording, we're sitting on about 108 degrees here in Portland, going through a little, wow. little heat bump. So, you know, we're going to let the stouts uh, sit in the fridge for a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to go with something <laughs> a little more refreshing. As I'm looking at my can of beer, you can maybe see it there. I don't know. I've got my background on, <laughs> but there is quite a bit of condensation on my uh, on my beer, as uh, Mother Nature and uh, cold beer are having a little battle. But uh, cheers to you! Cheers. Um, look forward to a good conversation here. So, if you're ready, I'm as ready as I can be. Okay, we're going to talk today a little bit about money, as we always do. But I want to I want to get inside your head a little bit on why is money so hard? Why is it easy sometimes? Why is it painful sometimes? Why does it spike emotional reaction sometimes? I'll just give you a little bit of a background as you're, you know, kind of settling into the conversation. I, when I was in college, uh, I was a finance major for a good portion of the time, and then I switched over to entrepreneurship. And one of my classes, we read Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And, you know, this is a time in everyone's life you know, early 20s when you're high in the sky, bulletproof, you think you can do anything. And there's this uh, epic um, monologue inside the, the book about why money is not the root of all evil. It's actually the exact opposite. But the absence of mind and mindfulness is what the root of all evil is. You know, people that aren't trying hard enough, people that aren't thinking hard enough, think people that aren't pushing the limitations of their own capabilities uh, in the world. I start thinking a little bit about that monologue and I start thinking about capitalism and I start thinking about the last couple of years um, in this country and how we had maybe atypical, maybe in retrospect, not so atypical economic policy um, that favored certain parts of the population and really didn't favor a significant parts of the population. Um, and then I think back even further to things like colonialism, slavery, war, you know, things where money was maybe the genesis of some of the really difficult parts of world history. But you also think about things like, say, space exploration or, you know, the invention of the internet, things like that, where money was certainly a leading uh, goal of innovation in those cases. So just trying to wrap my mind around like this is money is just so epically important and such a, such a major part of all of our lives. So I'm going to just start with two questions. When is money easy? And when is money hard and why? All right. Well, that's a big question. Um, it is. I know. I know. This is, a, this is porch beer. You know, this isn't, this isn't a multiple choice question. So I think, uh, you know, as an academic, now I don't know if my students would agree, but in, in a lot of ways, I think money is easier when we're staying within kind of the abstract economic theories that I'm used to working with. Like in, in that realm, I feel confident talking about what money represents and how it flows from one group to another and trade and all of the things that, that I, you know, I've been trained in in the discipline. And then, you know, when it, money that gets harder, when we try to start applying some of those models to the real world, and there's lots of other concepts and constructs that are outside of most economic models, but that affect most people's day-to-day -day experience with it. So, um, you know, you have to add in 
political power and, you know, your social hierarchies and, you know, fear and insecurity and all of those things that, that we have as humans that aren't in the kind of the bread and butter models that, that we're used to working with in economics. So I guess my answer is money's easier when it's a theoretical construct <laughs> and I know how to, I know how to model it. Um, it gets harder in the real world when you have to take in all these other considerations. Yeah. So it, as it relates to the individual, that's when it gets harder. You've got, to your point, fear. You've got uh, a competitiveness in some people or in, in everyone, really. You've yeah. Got- and, and not and not just individuals. I mean, you know, there's also sort of collective societal kinds of things as well. I mean, you know, just to give you like a real simple example. So, you know, in the in the basic economic models about how people are are dealing with their money, we have a budget constraint and we have the budget constraint is your income and prices. When we represent this graphically, it's kind of easy to say like, well, people prefer to have more resources, right? Because it allows them a larger consumption set. And we can say things like, well, you know, prices in absolute terms don't really matter. It's really just relative prices because um, when you work out the math, it's price of one thing versus the opportunity cost. That's, that's the price that really matters. And we can think about like, well, you know, if, if we have an unequal distribution of these resources and the purchasing power they represent, that's fine. We can just kind of, you know, tax people and, you know, just take some from this group, move it to this group, and then let people trade again and everything works out just fine. So that's the easy part. I can, I can say that, you know, absolute prices don't matter. It's really just relative prices. But, you know, when you're talking to your family members and their, you know, their rent just went up again and they're looking at, you know, their paycheck that didn't, yeah, that, that's a different, you know, that's a different kind of emotional story. So even as an economist, like when, when, you, when I hear you say money, I'm already translating that. So it's not really the money. It's not the dollar bill. It's the resources that it represents. It's the opportunities that it represents. It's what can I turn it into, right? Again, as a, as a you know, classically trained economist, there's, there's markets for how you get that money. There's a labor market for how you, you, for most people, how you sell your time and trade that for money. And then you take that money, you go to the goods markets and you, you, know, you trade that in. So again, all of that makes complete sense to me in a theoretical sense. But you yeah. know, where it gets tricky, and I think um, is that those resources and those, that, that purchasing power I mean, me personally, like security is a big thing. Like having those resources makes me feel secure. And if I don't have those resources, then I feel insecure and I start getting afraid. And that puts me into a different mindset on how much risk I'm willing to take and what kinds of opportunities I'm willing to pursue. For other people, it maybe it's that maybe it's a more positive drive is that they, they want the social status and the power that comes with having more resources. And so that's a incentive for them to to work hard or take more risk or try different entrepreneurial things. Um, so at the individual level, people can take either the promise of or the lack of resources in, in different ways. And then, you know, you mentioned societally, I don't think it's necessarily a feature of all free market economies that you have to have income inequality, but historically there has been income inequality in free market economies and our country is experiencing some of the biggest gaps between groups. And so that, that's also a, a different dynamic that we're dealing with, not just at the individual level. Let's go down that path a little bit. Because I, I think when, you know, to, to, to roll back to where I started, you know, reading this book in college, you know, you're in that mindset of like, 
capitalism, competitiveness, win, you know, if you try hard, you will, if you pivot, you will win, right? And, and to the winner goes the spoils, but it's not that simple, right? Capitalism, even like complete laissez-faire capitalism, right? Like unregulated, un, uninvolved government still favors, and correct me if I'm wrong, those that have the advantage of some or much money to begin with, it is easier to compound that. And those with less, it is much more difficult for them to move. Making that inherent gap stable, if not increasing, right? If not worse. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the part of the power of that compound interest is that when you've got a system that's based on private property and then trade, right, free markets, over time, if you're if you if you are a winner early and you're able to get more of the the goods and services, you can invest that, right? You can yep. build new businesses. You can loan it to other people that are that are building businesses. And you're right, the that compounding magic takes off over time. And even if it it started on a relatively you know even hypothetically if it started on a relatively equal playing field, the people that accrue their assets earlier are going to have an advantage just with the compounding over time. And for the people that don't accrue any assets early on, especially if they're having to borrow early on, it can work in the other direction. And so again, you play that out, even in what started as sort of a equal playing field, everyone's, you know, everyone's starting in about the same place. You can get to pretty disparate income, pretty disparate wealth levels over time. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, what is the government's role in a a purely capitalist world that uh, can be both supportive of you know all the good, but also protect and support the folks at the other end of the spectrum that are just as a result of the system don't exactly have the same advantages. To your point, yeah. Um, traditionally, there's been again most economists would give kind of two answers to like what's the government's role. One is we know that there are times when markets fail. Um, where they, they're, they're not efficient in the sense of allocating resources where they're best used and best valued. And so most economists will argue that there are market failures that the government might be able to fix. Not, some will argue about whether or not intervention, government intervention makes things worse or better, but there's at least hypothetically a role to improve the performance of the unregulated market. Then there's like a whole separate category, which is focused on the equity issue. So it's less about an efficiency argument that markets aren't working correctly. It's that even if the markets are working correctly, do we want to address the equity or inequities that come out of those markets? And those are often seen as kind of two distinct reasons for intervention. Sometimes there's a trade-off. You might, there are some cases where if you are focused on a more equitable distribution, you might you know, you might be willing to give up some efficiency and how the market's allocating resources to do that. Most economists, if they're interested in equity, are trying to find um, ways to get to more equitable outcomes that don't distort the good things that markets generate in terms of innovation, new wealth creation, new products, those kind of things. So I think where they might intersect um, is that I think there's a political case to be made that if the inequity gets to a point where the people at the bottom of the resource ladder aren't buying into the whole structure, right? So if the support for markets and the support for the government that's that's kind of regulating them collapses, that's not going to be good for efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think, I think 
And so I, and, and I, you know, there are people making the case that we've, we're getting to a point where trust in the system is low enough that, you know, if people don't feel like they have a chance, if people don't feel like there's an avenue for them to participate in these markets and, and better their lives, they might start looking for other solutions. And so I think that's where the politics comes in. Um, politics in the sense of not Republican, Democrat, but politics in the sense of like, how are we collectively going to organize and regulate these markets? And you can, you can potentially get shifts away from that. So I think there's another way to say this is there's, um, I don't think you would be right to be so tied to markets that you can ignore the equity issue, because I think there's an internal correction that might happen where, you know, people get sick of the structure, even the good things it's providing, if it's not affecting everyone, they're not going to have any incentive to keep it going. My mind's going in a couple different directions as you're saying this. You know, when you say the the, the first thing that, that stuck out to me is the, the the group at the lower rungs of the resource ladder have to participate in the ecosystem in order for the people at the top of the ladder to benefit. Like they need that full population, not just you know, not just within the the singular rung of whatever part of the ladder you're on, but you need the whole participation of the ladder. Uh, yes, but I I, I guess I want to be careful, so I don't. Um, and I, I have gotten into arguments with with my more left leaning kind of Marxist leaning fr- friends here. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily a feature of capitalism that there has to be haves and have nots, and that the haves are sort of taking advantage of the have nots. I I guess I would disagree with kind of a Marxist view on that. Okay. What I was intending is that if we've organized our society in a way that it's mostly market based with some some interventions here and there to kind of make sure things are working correctly. Even if you're at the bottom of the resource ladder, you don't really have a choice. Like you're, you know, you're in a labor market, like the way to, the way to get resources in at least the U S economy is you work. And so you're going to have to go in and either, again, either sell your time or come up with some good or service that you can sell to somebody to, to even participate. And so I guess I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that the, the rich need the poor for this thing to work. I'm saying like, the structure is such that wherever you're at on that resource ladder, like your option right now is to participate in, gotcha. in markets. Like there's, there is no there's other, not a, there's not alternative. Yes. At yeah. least in the U S right now. <laughs> so I, I, maybe that changes where your next question was going to go, but. Well, I, you know, one thing I was curious about is perhaps some specific policy that, that you you've been a fan of that has helped the whole community, the whole market, the whole population of the market, and then also some that maybe were misguided or were selfish, that didn't help everyone, um, that were maybe a little too politically, let's get reelected kind of policy, as opposed to let's let's really support the whole community that we are intended to support. Right, right. So, I mean, I think probably a classic example of this, I think I've mentioned this maybe on an earlier podcast, but it can often feel like the right thing to do to go in and set or fix prices. I don't know if you remember, there was a, I think there was like a local New York politician, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I saw on The Daily Show, but his whole thing was like, the rent's too damn high. The Do you remember this guy? Right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is an excellent platform, great slogan. Right, right. So- Kind of stop there. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, it can feel like if people can't afford things, then we should just you know, make them more affordable, right? We should either price caps or, you know, minimum wage laws or rent, you know, rent control, those kind of things. The rent control is the one I wanted to go with because there's a lot of good evidence that 
even though that feels like the intuitive right thing to do, we want people to be able to afford where they live. Therefore, we won't let the prices go up anymore. What a lot of economic theory and empirical evidence has shown is that places that have done this, what happens in the long run is those capped prices reduce incentives to build more capacity. So you get you get landowner or you know property managers, property owners not fixing up places and not building new ones. And that in a lot of cases, the rent control has made it harder for people to find a place to live. And they it starts being allocated in other weird ways. You know, there's kind of these like black market lists in some cities to like even get on a, you know, to even get in line for one of these things. And it's it would what an economist would be very inefficient way to fix a market. Whereas you could think about uh, other incentives that could be created to increase supply of housing, increase, you know, the density of housing. So we need more apartment complexes. We need more. And by increasing the supply, now you're solving two things at once, right? There's more units for people to to live in, which is what these growing cities need. And if you do your classic supply demand model, when you increase that supply, the equilibrium price drops. So you're getting potentially more affordable housing by incentivizing additional construction, for instance, right? As opposed to right. So that that's kind of like a, a classic example that is, is at least my take on the literature has been pretty clear that in that market, trying to fix the price to, to address a serious problem, right? Okay. Around affordability of, of housing for people, a basic, what most people would say is a basic human need. There's alternative ways to do it that might work with the market incentives that are already there in a better way. What, what's something that you're that you've seen recently that or an example similar to that that you're like this is spot on if we had more of this more styles of this type of policy um, it would have a significant impact so you know I think we've talked about this before and we've especially with the pandemic I think we've seen we're getting closer to seeing what these look like so going back to theory again if I was working in my little made-up world that we you know that we create when we write down these economic models, the way to address equity without affecting the efficiency of the markets is um, we used to call these in my, in one of my classes, like helicopter drops of money, (laughs) right? So you literally just take some resources from one person, put it on another person and then let them trade in the market. And so you're not addressing, unlike the last example, right? You're not going in and trying to do something with prices. You're, you're just redistributing the resources. Yeah. You're doing that in a way that's not affecting people's incentives in the markets, either in the labor market or in the goods market. The, the jury is still out on these, but the in this last pandemic, what we've seen are kind of like helicopter drops of money, right? I mean, people just got checks and it wasn't necessarily tied to a good they were buying, a, you know, a good they were producing, or even the job that they were, you know, did they look for work, you know, so, you know, some of the unemployment stuff is you still have to have, you know, you have to show that you're searching for jobs, and it only yeah, lasts yeah. for so much time. But, you know, the stimulus checks are, are probably the closest thing I've seen to these helicopter drops of money. And again, the theoretically, the good thing about these is that people can use these how they seem best. Now, the jury is out on this. We think it's sort of helped people stay in their homes. But if you look at the labor market right now, people aren't going back to work as fast as a lot of economists thought they would. And so one, there's lots of stories for this. One potential story is, well, 
we gave them some cushion, right? Maybe, you know, like on the positive side, maybe they're going to be able to look for a job that's a better fit for them, right? Match to somewhere where they're more productive, Take more they have time to retrain and get more productive. So right now where everyone's a little like, oh, you know, we can't, we can't seem to hire enough people. Why aren't people going back to work? But it may end up being a good kind of long run solution where you end up with a labor market where people are matched to jobs that are where everyone's more productive in them. Timing is something you've mentioned many times is speed is time, you know, as it relates to a healthy economy. Going back to your stimulus checkpoint, that was something that you said, I think when we originally talked about the stimulus several podcasts ago, but you pointed out that the mistakes that were made distributing meaning that sometimes certain groups or companies got access to loans that maybe didn't need them, but the speed was really important. Um, and in this case, maybe that is still the case. The money came so fast that now people have a little bit of that cushion. Um, uh, those wages at, at the bottom, those are the ones that people are having trouble getting, right. uh, getting the labor to commit to. But if that's the community that is being more selective, that maybe not maybe long-term that's great you know yeah it has the yeah it has the potential to be a good sign um i mean we so we just drove down for our annual beach vacation down to the coast of north carolina that part of north carolina let's just say they weren't volunteering for a lot of pandemic mitigation strategies uh masks weren't a big deal down there um like they were in, in durham and chapel hill but when we stopped at a fast food restaurant the indoors was not open it was only drive through. There was a very long line. And when I was relaying the story, I was like, wow, you know, like, why haven't they opened up yet? Like, the, you know, they, they can, there's no, you know, there's no yeah. restrictions. And the person that we were visiting with said, they probably just can't staff it. Right. They yeah. probably were, there were probably like two teenagers in there running the whole thing. So I, that's that to me, that's, I'm going to kind of file that away as like, 2021, <laughs> you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. This is kind of a, to me, a little microcosm of where the labor market is right now. So we're getting, a, we're, maybe I'm getting a little too far afield, but anyway, you asked kind of what things do I think are potentially working? We don't, I don't know. We won't know for a little while if this works or not, but um, at least theoretically, the idea of a UBI or, you know, something where if the problem is, is that some people don't have enough resources what's the sort of least intrusive way to get them those resources without affecting incentives for people to work or not, um, to, to participate in a market, to, to build that business or to not build that business, right? Um, if, we can, if we can sort of let the markets do what they do well, but also address the equity issue, that's ideally what we'd be trying to do. But it's, it's a lot harder in real life than it is in, on paper. Uh, that really just circles back to your original point of when is money easy in the abstract? When is it hard in real life? <laughs> Um, I want to I want to revisit that just briefly as we kind of conclude. Not in the abstract, but in in reality, money's hard, and a, I think a lot of what you were suggesting and and some of the things that anecdotally I, I've been thinking about personally, uh, as I reflect on the last fifteen years of my career and my money, my relationship with money, the behavioral economics, uh, the fear the competitiveness, the over-indexing in certain things. One of the things you mentioned was social status uh, versus the security you feel when your thoughts about social status versus your thoughts about being, you know, having the financial security are clearly in a healthier relationship. How do you personally 
quantify risk. When you think about money and the financial outcomes of that money, and what what can we learn from you when we think about money is so hard? But here's Strzok, financially classically trained economic mastermind. In your personal life, what are you doing to to help to help yourself? And specifically, how do you yeah. think about risk? Yeah. Um... Let me, so let me use this. I'll try to funnel down to get to your question. So one of the things that's hard about, it's sort of easy to say when we talk about markets, right? Like we'd like competition. You want, you know, you want people to have choices. You want there to, you want people working where they're the most productive. That's great. When you're talking about the economy, we are talking about theory as someone that lives in that market, it can generate a lot of stress and anxiety because you're kind of always on a knife's edge, right? Like there's always a worker that could replace you. There's always your skills might be eroding. If you're not using them, you're always having to kind of like make sure you're at the leading edge of what's valuable in the market. So for a person to live in that, I will, I will fully acknowledge it. It can be very stressful. And I think I felt that much more so in my twenties when I was choosing, okay, what, like what kind of skills and what do I have kind of intrinsically that I feel like I'm good at? What kind of skills do I want to learn? What's, you know, what kind of life is this going to lead? Right. An economist would say like, what kind of labor market will I be selling my skills in? Right. But like more personally, it's like, what kind of career am I going to have? Am I going to enjoy that career or not? I chose one that was a lot of schooling. Um, it took a long time before I got a real job. Right. I was 27, I guess, before I had anything that looked like a real job that wasn't some sort of temporary or RA kind of thing. I had to be sure, or at least, well, can't say sure. I had to be confident that if I went down that track, that when I finished all of my investment in my education, that something was going to come of it. So I went into a, you know, I went into an academic job market where I probably put out like 200 job applications, had that that turned into 20 first round interviews, which turned into like maybe three second round interviews and one job offer. So that was a very nerve wracking season of my life. Yeah. Even though, you know, when I look back, it seemed to work out. But, you know, during that process, I thought, well, I, I enjoy what I'm doing, you know, learning about economics. I think I would be a good researcher. I think I'm a decent teacher. So I'm going to invest four years of college and five years of grad school, but I didn't know what was going to happen at the end of that. And I had to go into, again, a a labor market that's extremely competitive. I managed to get something, but, (laughs) but it was close. Let's just put it that way. Um, That I try to remember that when, you know, if, if I've got younger people kind of asking me for advice or, or even my own kids, again, it's easy to say like, well, you know, find a skill that's valued in the labor market and go get yourself a job. But that process at the individual level, at the family level can be really stressful. Um, so when I, you asked about risk, I think some of those earlier, some of those decisions I made at that point, put me on, put me in a trajectory that worked out, but it, it was highly competitive and it was going to close other doors pretty quickly. Um, it was going to be hard for me to pivot out of those. So one thing to think about is, you know, how easy is a decision to undo, right? Like how much of a, how much of a commitment is it? How easy is it to walk back from it? That would be one way to define risk is can you kind of undo it? Um, 
I guess another, the other thing that I've noticed as I've, if, as I think about some of the bigger economic decisions I've made is that if you can make good decisions early, the, it'll make some of the later ones either less riskier or less important. So again, I've talked about career, you know, but even like on more of a personal finance thing around like buying your first house or something like that, making just simple things around staying within a budget that you think you can afford, even with job changes, even with the spouse losing a job, even with recessions, right? If you can, if you can find a place where you're, you think you can stay with it, no matter what comes on the other stuff, that good decision is going to open up all kinds of kind of operating margin, if you will, to try other stuff out, to make mistakes other places, right? Where I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a good place to live. Now I can, whether I move this, you know, take a new job here or, you know, when do I upgrade my car, all those things, you've opened up a bit of operating margin where you can de-risk some of those later decisions. So I'll stop talking because I've been talking for a while, but I don't know if that- um, I think that's actually a, a really thoughtful answer. You know, you, if you can strategically navigate the earlier decisions, whether it's in your life or in a section of your life, you know, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking as it relates to me. And I would assume that our listeners are thinking as it relates to them also. And you're thinking like, well, Drog, I didn't get a PhD from Duke and enter the labor market. I got a bachelor's degree and I went into a field that I thought was going to really be my future. Uh, And it wasn't. But in my second phase, I feel like I did. I took a big risk with starting my second phase. And I think I made that I made a great decision there that will de-risk some of my later um, issues, you know, finding a spot in a company that's not going anywhere a company that's a growth company, a company that's a market leader, a company that respects my skill sets, you know, and that I can contribute to that I know well. So I like, and again, not to bring this on me, but I'm just like, as you're giving this lengthy answer, like at each step, I'm like, okay, actually that's kind of, that feels good to hear that, to hear you say that, because there's times where I look back with deep regret and high criticism of myself. And then there's times where I think about like, did I even do the same thing again? Um, but to your point of like, take a, take a painful risk, maybe at the beginning that you really feel confident in will make those future moves less risky or maybe a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, you know, to make it, like you said, I think it's applicable kind of any, any phase of life you're in where you're, you're, you're having to make some big decisions again, whether it's career change, whether it's a move, whether it's, you know, a divorce and remarriage, like those are, <laughs> I'm not saying it's easy, but like, I feel like getting those right is going to make a lot of the other stuff so much easier, even if you screw that stuff up. <laughs> right. So get the, I guess this is Franklin Covey, but you know, get the big stuff down first. Um, and the big um, stuff be the big stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you're, you're right. It's not any less painful, but it is okay. It, it is okay, but it's not any less painful. Right. Um, but it's good to know that scientifically speaking, there is somewhat of a path to a little bit more comfort and a little bit, you know, being able to have a useful future based off of the experiences of your past in, in this type of case. So um, that was, that was a, a deep, thoughtful answer. You know, when I come, when I, when I stew on some of these porch beer questions or topics, really, they tend to sit in my head for a few weeks 
maybe a month or so. And I've, I'm constantly kind of massaging the, uh, the, the questions and kind of what I want to get out of, out of these conversations. And sometimes it turns into just uh, me getting in my head. And sometimes it turns into like, you know, I think Trog could really uh, wax poetic on this and, and really speak to, to myself and to um, an audience that, that could use this type of advice. And when I putting some notes together in the last couple of days about this, I kept leaning back on this, like, this is going to be kind of an abstract conversation <laughs> and I'm not sure if this is going to work. And even like this morning I was, I had a backup topic and I was kind of like, we record on, you know, for me, Sunday mornings for you, Sunday, midday. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting up in the morning and I'm having my coffee and I'm kind of like back and forth. Like, yeah, should I do the backup question? You know, that's a little bit more obvious. And there was some point this morning where I was like, just do it. If it's a, you know, just do it and see what happens. <laughs> so I'm glad we did it because I certainly learned a lot. Yeah. See, this is one of those, uh, this is one of those low stakes decisions that, you know, if it didn't work, <laughs> no one will ever hear what we just said. <laughs> well, I, I feel like it worked. <laughs> I certainly, you know, again, like I don't always want to, it's hard to take myself out of our conversation sometimes because that's a lot of where these porch beers are rooted. But I think you you brought some really significant clarity to capitalism and you know some of its intricacies, some of its flaws, some of its uh, benefits, and also just um, you know at a personal level, how can you make make progress? How do you think about certain things? And, and I feel like we talk about this a lot, but it's something that is a sensitive topic and a and a you know, the whole point of my question, like, why is money so hard? It's like, it's something that I think about every day. Um, and I'm sure you do too. And I'm sure everybody does, you know, and, and I don't think of it every day, like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> I think about it like, okay, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to make sure that this is ready? How am I going to make sure that I'm planning appropriately? And I'm, um, but I'm also enjoying appropriately that my, my family is, is comfortable, but not uh, comfortable at the expense of our future, et cetera. So like I said, awesome, awesome to hear your points on this. I appreciate the thoughtfulness. I appreciate that you went uh, deeper than uh, maybe you felt comfortable with uh, towards the end there, but all good answers, all good dialogue and, um, and a refreshing uh, Hood River hazy IPA uh, to wash it all down. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, man. Much appreciated. We'll see you next time. Hey friends, Brett from Trogonomics. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got some great nuggets, some good information from Trog. He dropped some amazing thoughtfulness. He dropped some great points today as always. And I hope you took away a few new nuggets. After listening, hit the website, trogonomics.com. You can see past episodes. You can see some of our YouTube videos that we've done. You can see some of the other research and some of the companion pieces that we've created. Also, Twitter, Instagram, at Trogonomics, T-R-O-G-O-N-O-M-I-C-S. And give us a follow. Rate, record, subscribe, listen, tell your friends, do it all. I hope you're finding this valuable. If you are, share it. Tell someone about it. Help us spread the good word. Help us get some good savings and good financial health spreading the word. Have a wonderful day. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.